0: And it's good to see uh, each and every one of you uh, this morning. Um, on Sunday, June eighteenth, 1972, a small article on the bottom of page one in the Washington Post read, five held in plot to bug democratic offices here. Of course, they were talking about the beginnings of uh, the now famous Watergate story. But what seemed to be a really small story on the bottom of page one eventually became Uh, one of the most dramatic stories in the last half of the 20th century and altered uh, this town and politics ever since. But initially, I doubt anybody thought it was that big of a story uh, when they first read it. In some ways, that's how I feel about the focus of our text this morning. Today, we're going to continue our series, as Brian uh, said earlier, uh, Echoes from Exodus. And in this series, we're exploring how God rescued and redeemed the people of Israel and how we see just echoes of God's redeeming work all throughout the pages of Scripture. And we see them ultimately fulfilled. We see God's grand redemptive purposes ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Just as the events of Exodus shaped and reshaped the stories and the identity of the Israelites, indeed, so does the life, ministry, and death of Jesus shape and reshape the story and the identity of all those who follow him in faith. The focus of our text today is wedged in between two really dramatic events in the nation of Israel. The 10th plague, which resulted in the death of every firstborn Egyptian, and the parting of the Red Sea, which we'll cover next week. And in between these two dramatic events, we see the call to celebrate and to remember from generation to generation the redemptive work of God. And this call is to be To celebrate uh, the redemptive work of God in such a way that we would call it maybe even a a ritual. A ritual intended to draw us closer uh, to the heart of God. Now our text covers uh, portions of Exodus chapter 12 and 13. So I'm just going to summarize some of it and then read some excerpts for us uh, this morning. So just a summary of Exodus Exodus 12, 1-11 for example. Last week, we covered uh, the first nine of the ten plagues, and we considered the reality of God's holy, righteous judgment. And the theme of God's judgment comes in view for us again today. But for a deeper dive on the subject of God's judgment, let me encourage you to go to our website or to our app and listen to last week's message if you didn't catch it. Chapter 12 opens with God giving Moses specific instructions on how the people of Israel can escape the angel of death that is going to strike the Egyptians. They are to prepare a special meal, God tells Moses. They are to take blood from a lamb or a goat and put it on the sides and the top of their door frames. This will protect them from death on that night. And the uh, angel of death will pass over their homes. On the same night, they are to eat this interesting, unique meal. Roasted lamb or goat, bitter herbs, and bread without yeast. There's no time for the yeast to rise. This is go time for the nation of Israel. They are about to be liberated from years and years and years of brutal oppression. Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 14 read, On that same night, God tells Moses, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then verses 12 through, through 23 read, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a, a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord strikes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. And then again, a summarizing here. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh all the way to the firstborn of the livestock. It was an awful, awful day of judgment. God then told Moses to get the people and head out, which they did. And the Egyptians wanted them out so bad, finally, after 10 plagues and this ultimate plague, that they let them plunder silver, gold, and clothing. And then God then gave Moses the instructions regarding the Passover meal. And even those, he gave them instructions on even those who were not Israelite could participate in in the Passover meal. Remember, one of the things we've been saying all throughout this series is that we have to keep God's ultimate redemptive work and focus when we consider the, this entire passage, that God's ultimate work was to, to raise up a nation, Israel, to be a vessel of God's glory so that all the nations would come and to worship God. We know that Israel failed in their journey, but out of Israel came the perfect Israelite who would call all people, the perfect Israelite Jesus, who would die for the sins of the entire world, every nation, including, of course, the Egyptians. Verse 42 then reads, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. It is this idea of remembering what God has done for us through powerful rituals that I want us to consider today. But first we really do need to take a look at three big themes uh, in this, these two chapters here. And the big theme is God's holy judgment, which we'll cover just a little bit, God's deliverance, and then the firstborn. Just a thumbnail sketch on each three. Again, last week we explored at length the idea of God's holy judgment, but let's talk about this 10th and ultimate plague for a moment. From the beginning of the epic story, we see how this has been a battle not between Moses and Pharaoh, but a battle between God and evil. Pharaoh represented the reality of evil and death. You remember the entire story begins with Pharaoh issuing a genocidal decree that every Hebrew baby, born, baby boy born is to be thrown into the Nile River. Why? Because Israel was obeying God's command from Genesis to be fruitful and to multiply, to increase. And Pharaoh became paranoid that they would eventually rise, become so nervous that they'd rise up against him. And so from that moment, we see Pharaoh being in opposition to what God commanded the people to do. We see Pharaoh being in opposition to God's redemptive purposes. God will move heaven and earth to oppose evil. And to bring evil to justice. When we read passages about God's judgment like this, from this passage here, we have to admit sometimes we cringe. Yet none of us would want to serve a God and follow a God who ignored the reality and the lethal threat of evil that is in our world. If God tolerated evil, if God just winked at evil and gave it a pass, we could not trust God to be just. And If we cannot trust God to be just, there's no other characteristic of God that we could ultimately trust. And so we go to a place of trust when we see these passages of God's judgment. We go to that place of trust and recognize that every single characteristic must be seen through the lens of the love of of God and the holiness of God. The second theme here is God's deliverance. This is indeed the focus of the story, the Passover story that gets told over and over and over. With the blood on the door frames, the Israelites would be spared from the judgment rendered upon the Egyptians. Then they were able to leave in the middle of the night, but not before being allowed to take silver and gold and clothing from the Egyptians, no doubt as provision for the journey. We read the story of deliverance, the shedding of blood as protection from judgment, and we hear the powerful echo of deliverance and redemption in the work of Jesus on the cross. As we learned last week, Jesus took the wrath of God so that we would not have to When we receive Him into the very center of our being, we receive His righteousness and we stand before God. It's not our goodness or badness that God sees. It's the righteousness, the right standing of Jesus that God sees. This is why I I asked Pastor Brian to read that that short little passage from John the Baptist when he lays eyes on Jesus and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Americans? Americans? Of British? Of Germans? No. Who takes away the sins of the world. Now here's what I love about the Bible. I almost always focus on something new. I'm 58 years old, I've been in ministry now for, for 30 years. I've read this story over and over and over and I've never focused on the, this little tidbit of the, the, the Israelites being able to go and take silver and gold and clothing from the Egyptians. Remember, they were an enslaved people. They were considered second-class citizens at best in Egypt you would have thought the story would have read and they scurried out the metaphorical back door with only the clothes on their back. We would have nodded at that if the story had gone that way. But no. Here is an image of the people of God leaving the people who enslaved them and oppressed them. Here is the image of the people of God leaving with their heads held high triumphantly. And one of the things that we must remember is that God's deliverance does not only spare you from death. God's deliverance gives you triumph and power over evil. That is a powerful part of this story. It's one thing to be spared from death. It's another thing to have power over the evil that oppresses Yes, as God's people, we, we walk out and walk into our deliverance with humility, but also trusting God's power to give you all that you need to thrive in the new life that God has given you. So, that's a, another thumbnail sketch of this really big theme of deliverance. And then there's this theme of the firstborn. It is all throughout, it comes up over and over and over in this section. The firstborn has powerful significance in the Bible. The text says that every firstborn human or animal is claimed by God as belonging to God. Christopher Wright wrote, It was a symbolic declaration of the nature of the relationship between Israel and God, namely one of complete belonging to God as his possession, and on that basis, deliverance from Egypt. What God had redeemed from death, get this, what God had redeemed from death belonged to God. Let me say that again. What God redeemed from death belonged to God, and the consecration of the firstborn was declaration of the continuity and permanence of Israel's relationship with God. In laying special claim to the firstborn in each family, God was in effect laying claim to the succeeding generations as his own. What God redeems belongs to God. God. If your life has been redeemed by God, if you have said yes to faith in Jesus Christ, your life belongs to God. Somebody say, I belong to God. We see our Lord Jesus portrayed in the Bible as the firstborn in many ways, don't we? He was the firstborn of Mary. Saint Paul wrote this beautiful metaphor that he's the firstborn of of all creation and that he sustains and holds creation together. And he is the firstborn, one of my favorite images of Jesus. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. As the firstborn of the resurrection, he guarantees new and eternal life to all those who trust in him. He went first. And we received the blessing. I love hearing the powerful, powerful stories of those who are first-generation immigrants. Many came here seeking refuge from hostile governments or horrible living conditions. They come seeking a better life for themselves and their children, and they were the first in their families to become U.S. citizens. And then as their children are born, they receive the blessing of the ones who came first. I love those stories. I love to hear those stories. They make me proud to be a part of this country when I hear stories of immigrants who come here. Jesus went first through death into the resurrection, and we, as his children who follow, are blessed. So I offer these thumbnail sketches of these big themes, but let's return to the subject of remembering the work and deliverance of God through powerful rituals because that's the kind of aha for us as we read this text. How do we remember with life-giving practices. After all, God was very careful. Read through this passage over and over. God is very careful to give Moses instructions how to remember. How can we do this? Well, I've written a definition for ritual for us, and it's simply the participation in a spiritual practice for the purpose of drawing us closer to God. The participation in a spiritual practice for the purpose of drawing us closer to God participating in a spiritual practice for the purpose of tradition? No. For the purpose of doing what grandma and grandpa have always done? No. For the purpose of making us feel better about ourselves? No. For the purpose of checking off the list so that we can feel good about the week? No. It's the purpose for the ritual to draw us closer to God. It has so much power Spiritual practices, rituals that we observe—they have so much power. Yet, if we're not careful, they can be deceptive. They can be if we, deceptive if we—deceptive if we perform a ritual without it being connected with our heart and our heart to God. As a matter of fact, it can be so deceptive. This powerful idea that we can actually go through the motions without our hearts being connected. And then we may think we're just good. (laughs) And then we leave until the next time and we go through it without our heart being connected. And we think we're just good. And we go through life, maybe some of us, thinking, oh, we're just good. I've gone through the motions. I've gone through the ritual. My heart, well, I'm not sure about all that. And it creates this sense of spiritual lethargy and apathy. Dare I say spiritual blindness. So it's really crucial that any religious practice, ritual, is connected with the heart. Let me give you an analogy. As a pastor, I've met many people who have wonderful and beautiful Christmas Eve traditions. Haven't you, Pastor Brian? Haven't you, Ed? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a friend of mine in in Richmond, and and part of Christmas Eve, and he starts planning it really early, and part of Christmas Eve is that he likes, in, in the church Uh, that we were in together for a while, Uh, there were several Christmas Eve services. He always wanted to know when was the earliest Christmas Eve service, because he had to get home and roast the oysters for the family Christmas Eve. And I'm telling you, if the roasters were good, I think my friend would say, this was a good Christmas Eve. God love him, right? Or I've got another friend from the Midwest, And he said growing up, Christmas Eve was so special because his family, they like to go not to the early service, they like to go to the late service. And I said, well, why do you like to go to the late service? I mean, like almost midnight type service, right? And he said, because my dad just loved the Christmas Eve service. And he said every year we would would have our dinner and then dad would have just a little much eggnog and we'd get to the Christmas Eve service and he'd sing to the top of his lungs and out of key all the Christmas carols. Our own family, Jody and I and the kids, we love after services are over, we love going to a, a, a nicer than normal restaurant for us and just enjoying the day or the evening. So, you know, we, we have Christmas Eve rituals, many of us, but then I wonder is do we think it's good if the oysters are good or the, or the eggnog was a little special, right? Or, or whatever, or did the hearts connect with the living God who was born to take away the sins of the world? See, rituals can be powerful, but you've got to be careful. Just like any other gift of God that is incredibly powerful, you have to be careful. You have to handle it with humility and with awe and reverence to the holy God that we love and we serve and we obey. How can we keep our rituals fresh and alive? It's just simply remember and participate in the story of God. Because see, that's what Israel was called to do over and over and over in all these instructions about the Passover. It's simply, remember what God did for you when he passed over your house. Remember what God did for you. Remember how God brought us out of Egypt. And don't just remember it. Step into this story. Participate in this story. As Christians, Jesus instituted a new rite for us to follow in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we also refer to it as communion. I'm not surprised that God in Christ used a meal as a ritual. I'm not surprised that God in Christ used a meal to remember the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus did some of his best work at mealtime. At the house of Levi, he set the table of mission as he ate with tax collectors and sinners. At a meal with 5,000 seekers, he set the table for evangelism. At Mary and Martha's house, he set the table for friendship. At a meal with the scribes and Pharisees, he set the table for holiness. At a meal with lawyers and religious leaders, he set the table for what God's kingdom was really all about. At the Last Supper, he set the table for discipleship. In a parable, he set the table of salvation as a banquet feast for all eternity. In communion, Jesus established what Henry Nouwen and others have called the Eucharistic Rhythm. The Eucharistic Rhythm. And this is how we can not only remember the story of God in Christ, but also how we can step into the story of God in Christ. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to, to go through it together. So you have your communion kits on, on the chairs. Just, all I want you to do right now is just hold them. Okay? Just hold them and, and be ready to open them when, when we're finished today. At home, encourage you to get your bread or cracker and, and your juice. And let's just walk through this together carefully for a moment. Jesus gathered in the upper room to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. Luke tells us that he was eagerly awaiting to eat the Passover meal with them. He was excited to eat this Passover meal with them. This was a meaningful meal moment for Jesus. This meal represented the story of God's deliverance and redemption. And it was about to take a new meaning. (laughs) It was about to find its fulfillment in Him. And it was about to issue in a new covenant. And, And by the way, while you're holding those, do you guys in the balcony have communion cups? Awesome. Okay, good. Thank you then it says that jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body given for you and the first step of the eucharistic rhythm is this idea of being taken it's the idea of being taken jesus was taken he was chosen by god to be our redeemer this was his life's mission we remember that his body was given for us his blood was shed for us. We step into the story when we realize that we have been taken. We have been chosen by God to be in His family. We have been taken. We have been chosen by God to step into His grand purposes in the world. You have been taken by God. Just say to yourself, or say it out loud, I've been taken by God. And it says Jesus blessed the bread and the cup. Jesus was blessed by God at his baptism. When he was baptized, the voice of heaven came down and said, This is my son. I am pleased with him. Henry Nowen writes, It is not enough to be chosen. We also need an ongoing blessing that allows us to hear in an ever new way that we belong to a loving God who will never leave us alone, but remind us always that we are guided by love on every step of our lives. Now and goes on to write, The real work of prayer is to become silent and listen to the voice that says good things about me. This might sound self-indulgent, but in practice, it is a hard discipline. I am so afraid now in rites of being cursed, of hearing that I am no good or not good enough, that I quickly give in to the temptation to start talking and to keep talking in order to control my fears, to gently push aside and silence the many voices that question my goodness and to trust that I will hear a voice of blessing. That demands real effort. You know, we live in a performance-oriented culture, don't we? As God's people, we need to remember that we live in this world with the blessing of God over us and on us. You have been taken and you have been chosen by God and you have been blessed by God. His love is set over you as His people. You have been blessed by God. And then it says Jesus took the bread, He blessed the bread, And he broke the bread. He poured out the cup. You know, with the exception of a few things, most everything we eat dies so that we can eat it. I didn't have time to do the research. Somebody tell me later, does tofu die before you eat it? I mean, I don't know. But most of the things we eat dies before you eat it. It is broken so that we can be sustained. Lynn Sweet said that this is why we say grace, something dies so that we might live. That's why we say grace. Do you see the life of Jesus here? He is the bread of life. He was broken. He died in our place so that we can be sustained and so that we can live. And to participate in the story of God, we must realize that we need to be broken for the sake of service. No, I'm not talking about the the type of brokenness we talk about when we talk about our wounds and the need for healing. Of course we need to be put together by God when we've been broken and wounded. And God promises to do this. But the type of brokenness here is this idea of of submitting our agenda and submitting our self-centered needs sometimes and self-centered wants and lay them down and allow them to be laid down so that we can step into all that God has for us. Laying down our preferences for his preferences. It's the act of giving ourselves for his holy purposes. And so the bread is taken, you're taken. It is blessed, you are blessed. And then it is broken, it is set aside for his purposes. And then the last step in this Eucharistic rhythm is given. It is given. Jesus took the bread and cup and he gave it to his disciples. Jesus distributed the bread and the cup at the supper. His life was distributed and given for the sake of the world. We are the body of Jesus. This world is hungry for spiritual food. Is it any surprise that the Lord calls us to give of ourselves? Is it any surprise that the Lord wants to take you, bless you, receive this submission that you offer to the Lord, this brokenness, and then distribute you all around the world? That's what He plans to do with your life. Is He plans to distribute you, to give you to the world that needs Him through you you are taken blessed broken and given for the world this is how we remember and it's how we participate in the story of God taken blessed broken given just say it with me taken blessed broken given will you pray with me jesus thank you for the gift of your life thank you for being our redeemer and our deliverer as we share in this bread and cup jesus let it be a reminder that we share in your life help us to remember you to love you to serve you and to live for you our lord our life lord we receive that we are taken blessed broken, and given. Amen. I invite you to eat the bread and remember Jesus. And just as Jesus shared the cup with his disciples, we share this cup today as his people. I invite you to drink and remember Jesus. Taken, blessed, broken, given. Amen. We're going to celebrate this love story between God and his people with our closing hymn. It's a classic hymn Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, sung to a little bit of a different tune. Let me invite you to stand together as we sing.